Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Frank Place. I am the director of the Policies, Institutions, and Markets CGIAR Research Program, or PIM, as we call it. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this PIM webinar. The topic we are going to discuss today is myths about the feminization of agriculture, implications for global food security. The feminization of agriculture is a term used to describe women's increased roles in agriculture in many parts of the world. However, the changes occurring in the agricultural sector are more com complex than this term suggests. In this webinar, we will present and discuss findings of a new paper on myths about the feminization of agriculture, which comes out of the larger cross-CGIR project led by PIM entitled Feminization of Agriculture, building evidence to debunk, debunk myths on current challenges and opportunities. Let me introduce our speakers. First is Cheryl Doss, who is Associate Professor and Senior Developmental Lecturer in Development Economics at the Oxford Department of International Development, University of Oxford. And she is also leader of the PIM flagship on cross-cutting gender research and coordination. Nozomi Kawarazuka is a scientist with the International Potato Center, SIP, and cluster leader of strategic gender research in the CGIR research program, Roots, Tubers, and Bananas. She is a social anthropologist and focuses on qualitative research in Southeast Asia and South Asia. Another co-author of the paper we will be just discussing today, Kathy Farnworth, we expect to be uh, uh, participating in the webinar and she can join us hopefully for the Q&A at the end. Uh, the other co-author, Rhiannon Pyburn, is unfortunately unable to join. Before I hand a few notes on how we proceed. The presentation in the first part of the webinar will last for about 30 minutes with the rest of the time dedicated to the Q&A. Please feel free, and actually I encourage you to send your questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens at any time during the webinar. We'll do our best to answer as many uh, of them as, as the time allows, or if we can't get to them, we will follow up afterwards. When you ask uh, your questions, please let us know who and where, you, where from you are and what organization you represent, if applicable. Uh, we will try to collate uh, the questions and pose them to, sh to Cheryl and Nozomi, you know, trying to get uh, similar questions posed at the same time if possible. Uh, finally, the webinar is being recorded and will be available on the PIM website shortly after the live event on the same page you visited to register. So with that, uh, I will pass it over to Cheryl and Nozomi. Great. Well, thank you very much. And I'm going to start and then about halfway through, we'll pass it over to Nozomi. So today what we want to talk about is four myths about the feminization of agriculture. And these are things that come up in the literature and in the conversations about what's happening in rural areas um, in many parts of the world where it gets labeled as a process of the feminization of, of agriculture. And what we want to argue today is that thinking about and really focusing on this process of the feminization of agriculture may actually mask or kind of render invisible some of the other changes that are really important that are going on in rural areas. If we think about first, what is a myth and why are we calling these myths? Well, these are, you can also think of them as stylized facts, um, but they're things where there is a kernel of truth to them. 
the reason that people talk about them and repeat them is because they do embody some part of the story of what's going on. But what we want to argue today is that just focusing on that idea of the feminization of agriculture may miss some important things that are going on. So we're going to talk about four of them today. The first one is that the feminization of agriculture is the predominant global trend. This is the right term to explain what's going on in agriculture across the world. The second one is um, that the feminization of agriculture is bad for agriculture. Um, the third one is in a sense that the feminization of agriculture is bad for women and arguing that, the, that women, often called the women left behind, um, that they're passive victims of these processes and that they're not farmers. And finally, a notion that all women farmers face similar kinds of challenges. So I'm going to talk about the first two. So the first one is this notion that this is what's happening in agriculture globally, the, this process of the feminization of agriculture. And the feminization of agriculture is often defined as an increasing number, an increasing share of the workforce in agriculture becoming women. Um, sometimes it gets defined as um, that more women than men are now in farming, but if we think about feminization as a process, it just means that the, usually it means that the share of women relative to men is increasing. Um, other people have defined it as actually with negative connotations, that it's a process whereby um, agriculture is becoming worse and women are, are worse off. So there is some truth in this notion that, that women are becoming a larger share of the agricultural workforce. Um, so this kernel of truth is that in many areas in the world, men are migrating out of rural areas and that women are an increasing share of workers in agriculture. So we see that women are an increasing share of workers in agriculture, both as smallholder farmers, um, that as men move out, women become, um, become the farmers. And we also see a trend whereby women are moving into wage labor in agriculture as agriculture becomes more commercialized in some areas. We do see some, in some places, a third pattern where we see women migrating within rural areas to work in agriculture, but not necessarily on their own farm or in their own home community. So there is some truth in this and documenting some of these patterns is a useful thing to do. What we wanna challenge is this notion that, that this is the main thing that, that's going on. Um, and personally, I'd like to challenge kind of the notion that what's really useful for researchers to do is to document and prove whether or not the feminization of agriculture is occurring. Um, actually, we're interested, we ought to be interested in a broader range of questions. So in terms of challenging the myth, the first thing is that we really don't have good data on global trends on what's happening. Um, Many of the studies where they are looking at a particular area um, and documenting that there is a trend towards more women in agriculture relative to men in particular areas, and occasionally people documenting that it's not happening, that that's not the trend in a particular area. 
but we don't have really good data to be able to say what's happening overall. In part, this is a challenge about the data itself, um, and that in many areas, women who have been working in agriculture traditionally would not have identified themselves as working in agriculture. So part of what we may be seeing is just women's increased visibility rather than a change in their actual activities. The things that they were doing as, as wives and as housewives may have included a lot of work in agriculture and now that's starting to be captured more and more often. But we don't have good, good data on the, on the global trends. In addition, in some areas, women are actually migrating out of agriculture. And if we just focus on the feminization of agriculture, we often miss these patterns where women are the ones who are leaving the rural areas and going to work. We also want to really think about, right, what do we mean by agriculture? And what do we, if we're thinking about the feminization of agriculture, thinking about it in terms of what's happening in the small scale agricultural, smallholder sector is really different from thinking about what's happening in the commercial sector. And confounding those two, um, and not looking at the patterns of who's moving from smallholder agriculture into commercial farming, what are those roles, really is missing an important part of the story. And finally, when we're actually thinking about um, commercial agriculture, when people talk about the feminization of agriculture, usually what they're worrying about is the situation for women who are working Right. Women are much more likely in these systems, these commercial farms, to work as seasonal laborers and not to hold some of these more permanent and managerial positions. But we need to be looking at those layers as well, not just counting up how many women are working in, in these commercial farms, but really looking at where within the commercial farms they're working. Um, and we do not tend to see uh, a feminization of management of commercial farms or owners of commercial farms. That's not the trend that we're, that we're seeing. So a little bit just to say, to sum up a little bit, what, what are the implications? What's wrong with thinking about and really trying to measure the feminization of agriculture? The myth really simplifies the story about the changing labor patterns and ignores and renders these other kinds of changes invisible including things like women moving from being on the smallholder farm, being unpaid family labor to being the farm manager, um, that wouldn't show up in, in, the, in the data. And that may be a really important part of the story of what's going on. Um, and then again, these changing, we need to be looking much more broadly at the changing roles of men and women within the agricultural sector and within the rural sector. And it varies much more widely across contexts. And these other kinds of patterns about who's doing what, what roles they're playing, are also going to have important implications both for household welfare and for food security. The second myth is that the feminization of agriculture is bad for agriculture. Um, and this comes out of work that's looking often at the plot level. Um, and showing that farms that are managed by women are less productive than farms managed by men. And there is some truth in that. There are studies that show that farms managed by women are less productive than those managed by men. 
And then this feeds into a notion that then as men move out of agriculture and more farms are managed by women, there's not gonna be enough food being produced in areas. It's gonna really have an impact at a national level on food security. So there is this kernel of truth too, but we also wanna challenge this myth. Um, there's quite a bit of literature that also finds examples where women's farms are as productive as men's farms. So it doesn't have to be the case that women's farms are less productive. There's been, there was a little flurry of work around looking at these gender gaps in productivity um, over the last few years. Um, and what we see is that we can explain a lot of the gender gaps in productivity on men's and women's farm with some structural factors, particularly regarding women's access to resources, um, their access to the quality of land, to extension services, to labor. They often, women's farms have much less access to male labor. And so the piece of land that women are farming may be less productive than when men are far farms that men are farming but it's not about the gender of the farmer per se, but about all these structural factors that go along with it. We also need to think about what some of this means, right? And, and kind of there's a statistical artifact of some of this. So if you'd imagined a scenario in which a couple was running a smallholder farm on very marginal land, and the man was considered the farmer and the woman was not considered as working in agriculture. It was the man's farm. Um, and then because the farm is so marginal, he leaves and goes and works somewhere else, right? On average, that's gonna increase men's productivity in agriculture because this man is no longer farming this marginal piece of land. And it's actually gonna increase women's or decrease women's productivity in agriculture on a farm, right? Because now we've got a woman managing this marginal farm. So although nothing's changed except that the man has left, even if the farm is producing exactly the same amount of, of, of output, we're gonna see an increase in men's productivity and a decrease in women's productivity. And I don't think that's the story that we're, that's not the kind of changes that we're really interested in. That farm may be producing exactly the same amount of land. So really thinking about what some of these things mean is really critical. And finally, we also want to argue that yield is not the only measure of what's good for agriculture, or what's good in ag good agriculture. Um, we also need to be thinking about household level food security and also issues around social and environmental sustainability. And we get different measures, different patterns of what's good for agriculture if we think about agriculture defined in this broader kind of way. So some of the implications of this are, I think the focus on trying to measure productivity on men's and women's farm as an end in itself is kind of a misguided um, focus of our research. We need to be thinking about how to increase the productivity of marginal farms and make sure that both men and women are able to take advantage of some of the processes of commercialization and the new opportunities that are created. We need to address factors discriminating against women farmers um, so that they have access to more of the re resources. Um, and then again, this point that I just made about realizing the value of food crops for household security and defining what's good for agriculture in a slightly broader sense.
So I'm going to turn it over to Nozomi for the third myth. Okay. Uh, sorry, my internet is not really great, so I turn off my camera and I will get back uh, after I, my explanations. So now I'm going to present the next two myths, uh, draw on literature, mainly from ethnographic, uh, ethnographic and qualitative case studies. The third myth is about well-known statement of women left behind who are passive victims and not recognized as farmers. The truth is that men jobs women suffer from limited resources which are controlled by male relatives such as brother-in-law and father-in-law. One paper that described very strongly uh, is a uh, Patanaik's paper 2018 from India, which you may know, authors call women's situation in male migration as feminization of ag agrarian distress because those women who are left behind have to compensate for their shortage of labor, shortage of resources by using their own labor, both paid and unpaid, so nothing good for them. Other papers also highlight that some women don't receive remittances or remittances are controlled by male relatives. A key point is that men's physical absence does not automatically promote women's positions within the household because their positions are deeply embedded in structural inequality and the society's gender norms. Those papers are still very nuanced when you read deeply, but uh, sometimes we pick up some of their statement and uh, generalize and we challenge it, is that women who remain in rural areas have a range of aspirations and negotiate over resources in creative ways. First is a strategic choice, the left, left illustration. Let me introduce one fascinating paper from Senegal by Mondainit. The title of this paper is The Reality of Those Who Left Behind. Very interesting. They say that it is women who facilitate labor migration of their male relatives by providing finance, producing uh, connections in migration destinations. In return, women receive remittances from men and use them on their own interest. Women are very strategic in this regard. Another story, still about strategic choice, is from Tanzania by Ashambut. She says that women's livelihood are built on their social networks in their own communities, so they don't want to move. Let men go out. Women keep their economic autonomy and their economic independence in their rural villages. This is their choice. This is also contrasting to other papers talking about men's decisions on migration, which is not necessarily based on their aspirations, but they are forced, men are forced to go because they have no options. There is a one Cambodian really good paper about talking about it. The second example of the middle is that farmer women can become farm managers two papers from Philippines and India show how women farmers negotiate with their male relatives 
and male laborers in order to be farm managers. Some women eventually take a role that was previously considered as men's domain. Here, gender transformation is happening. The third case is uh, women become innovative farmers. This is from Vietnam. When men migrate, they change crops that require less labor, such as fruits and timbers. By so make free use of husband's absence for preparing their own business careers. So the latter three cases really highlight how capable women are making strategic choices as much as men do, or even more than men do. This has implications. Uh, next slide, please. So migration and crop systems are closely associated. Understanding gendered migration patterns are central to offering appropriate options for sustainable crop diversification. Also, demand-driven agriculture innovation for women farmers, I'm emphasizing women farmers, are required in terms of design of innovation approaches to scaling because women are very strategic and selective of technologies you offer. So we have to be very careful about what uh, women situation are in their feminization context. Uh, next slide, please. The fourth myth is that women farmers are a homogeneous group. This myth is generated through gender analysis. Simply compare women's situations with those of men. The kernel of truth is that there are gender-based barriers across the world which disadvantage women because of their gender. For example, access to land, access to finance, agriculture input, extension services. Uh, women are disadvantaged in general uh, because of their gender. To challenge this myth, we closely look at intersectionality. Intersectionality operationalize and privilege certain identities. Some women face layered disadvantages based on their identities at multiple different levels. For example, being economically poor, widow, ethnic minorities, minority Muslim in the Hindu majority or in the being daughter as compared to mother-in-law. Let's explain with concrete example from Vietnam. Ethnic majority and minority. Senior women and young mothers, those are very clear identities. I observe a big feminization pattern for the young minority women as compared to ethnic majority, innovative senior women I described in the previous slide, previous myth. Why? Because the minority young women live with mother-in-law, many of the burdens of farming shift to those young married women, daughter-in-law, when their husband, father-in-law, brother-in-law all go to migrate. They have to go all because their salaries are much lower compared to majority ethnic men, ethnic majority men. And they rarely come back to the village to save the cost for transportations. So situations are very different. So let's talk about another example from caste in the Gujarat, India. If you go for the big average, there are many women working in agriculture in Gujarat average, even more than men. 
But when you closely look at that statistics and gender patterns, it is scheduled caste and scheduled tribe women uh, who are much more likely to work unpaid on family farms and as paid laborers, while middle and higher caste women don't need to do agricultural work. So privilege, this privilege contrast among women. However, despite their disadvantages, those women negotiate and create some autonomy to make strategic choices, as discussed earlier. But their enabling environment are very different from privileged women. Uh, next slide, please. So feminization of agriculture provides uh, different, differentiated challenges and opportunity to women with different identities with the same, within same communities. More research is needed on how intersectional markers of identity affect food production, food insecurity. Scenarios need to be developed to take this insight to scale to help develop a strong food systems. As that, interventions need to be tailored to meet the specific needs of different women farmers in the community, including the most marginalized. Uh, if we don't see those power structures based on identities, there is a high risk of supporting already advantaged women in agriculture and creating a gender gap uh, among women. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is our last slide in conclusion. Uh, women are often concentrated in specific domains. Debunking myths help bring gender and intersectionality into global food security discussions. Uh, finally, we would like to propose critical research questions to address uh, questions of feminization, not be whether women or men, which remain we have to ask which groups of women and which groups of men remain in the rural areas and why. How they are expressing their agency? How do they negotiate over farming resources and over labor? What factors support strategic life choices? And what circumstances out migration empowering for women? Uh, thank you very much. I think this is the last slide. We have acknowledgement on the last cover uh, slide. Thanks, Nozomi. Maybe I can ask Cheryl to come back on screen for the Q&A. Nozomi, we couldn't quite, I couldn't at least quite hear some of your presentation on the last slide, maybe because of the internet, but the previous slides were clear, so that was good. Um, okay. Anyway, yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's how things go sometimes. Um, yes. Let me start off with, a, we have a couple questions. Um, let me start off with one from Dave Harris, who uh, I know quite well from Icrasat Days and Bangor University. He asks, uh, what are we more interested in, the good of agriculture or the good of rural households and families? So, because we, we noticed, I guess, that your 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 myths were oriented around uh, slightly around uh, um, agriculture, but I guess maybe more generally, uh, do we know, what do we know about um, migration, for example, and, and uh, the good of rural households and families. And Cheryl, this might get to your other point that you made before that we have to go beyond productivity and there's other kinds of measures even within agriculture that we might be interested in, but maybe more broadly about welfare. So um, I'll turn that one over to you now. 
if the question is, do we care about agricultural production overall, or do we care about rural households and communities? Um, I, I don't think we want to pick one over the other. I think we care about both of them. Governments in particular are are concerned about agricultural production, right? And you hear this from lots of governments that people don't want to stay in farming, people are leaving, often meaning that productive farmers are, are leaving. Although lots of what we see are unproductive farm, farm farmers or farmers on unproductive farms who are the ones leaving. Um, so there may be a concern about agricultural production overall, but I think we also want to be thinking about the of, of households and communities. I mean, the, the good thing that the, the emphasis on the feminization of agriculture and those kind of initial, the initial work on it really said, we need to think about who these people are that are working and who's, who's on the farms now, right? And it was a process, conversations about the feminization of agriculture were part of what started to make women and women's work in agriculture much more visible than it, than it had been. But in terms of research, I think we need to be thinking about both of those pieces, right? Rural, rural households and what's happening with rural households, as well as this question about how do we ensure that there is sufficient agricultural production and that farms overall, the, the national level agricultural production continues to increase so that we can feed, feed households and communities. Good. Did you want to add anything, Nozomi? Uh, yes, I add one point. Né? So farmers, uh, farmers have priorities themselves. It's a priority may not be uh, that the best productivities or best incomes. So that because behind agriculture, they have many uh, strategies. I think that that we have to look at uh, it. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Uh, okay. So we have a question also from. <clears throat> Martin Van Van Ginkel of ICARDA. Um, he says, this is not, the what you presented is not really a new topic, some of these myths. They've been studied uh, at least since the 70s, some of them. Uh, why is it still being said that we don't have enough or the relevant data? How is that still accepted as an excuse? And to, to what extent is it really true in uh, all the cases you presented? So my, my point wasn't that we don't have good data on specific examples. I think we have a lot of good data on specific examples where people have gone into particular areas and studied what's happening um, in a right in a particular set of communities. Right. What what I was arguing that we don't have good data on is the overall global patterns. Um, to know the extent to which kind of the extent to which overall do we see um, so we, we've got specific cases, but but to what extent are the specific cases representative of of global trends and global patterns? Because we've got cases in both directions of places where where there is the feminization of agriculture, where men are moving out and women are taking over the farms, but there's also other places um, where that's not happening, where women are not moving in into agriculture, places where women are moving moving out of farming. Um, I think all of this, all of these conversations are happening in a context where overall the number, the proportion of the population working in agriculture overall is decreasing, right? So we're thinking about 
who's taking over the farms and what's happening, um, it's often in a context where both men and women, lots of people are moving out of agriculture. The questions are about who's who's staying there. So we have, right, we people have been working on these issues for for a lot of years. And I think part of what we're saying is framing some of these questions around the feminization of agriculture isn't helpful at this point. Um, we need to be thinking about some of these broader changes that are going on and looking at them in broader ways than just trying to count up whether there's now more women than men, you know, whether, whether those trends of changes in the labor result in women being a greater share of the agricultural labor force. Great. Um, let me go to the next one and then Zoom, you can also, do you want to chip into that one? Uh, yes. I, I want to add uh, one thing. Yes, exactly. That feminization of culture, literature start in uh, feminization of agriculture, that literature start from 1970s. You know, so not, not new at all for all the time it's happening. Uh, however, that the, the reason behind uh, it's changing, patterns are changing very complex way with globalization, migration, women's migration, a climate change, a conflict. So how do we interpret uh, those changes? And also, we are now including saying uh, gender transformations, gender equalities. So how we connect this feminization of agriculture to uh, gender transformative approaches to agriculture? That is now current uh, hot topics. COVID also affected a lot. You know, gender patterns of migration changed a lot now. So we have to always catch up is those changing uh, patterns. Thank you. Great, thanks. We got a, a couple questions from um, a, stu a student from Michigan State University. She has uh, three questions. So one is, have you found cases of women organizing in groups due to feminization of agriculture? I think this was maybe touched upon a little bit um, in, in the Zomi's uh, first slide. Uh, are the cases of gender-based violence related to feminization of agriculture? And thirdly, have you found any critical differences according to geographical areas, uh, for example, Southeast Asia versus Central America in terms of uh, some of these myths or, or in feminization of agriculture as a whole? If you need to me to repeat any of them, let me know. <laughs> Thanks. You want to go first, Nasomi? Uh, I couldn't get the questions, uh, so maybe Sherry, uh, please go ahead. <laughs> so I'll, actually, I'll let you come back to the first one about cases where women organizing. Um, some of these kinds of changes. And I think, I mean, the answer is yes, there are certainly cases where women have organized um, in lots of different ways, either as self-help groups, um, women organizing in producer groups, women organizing in groups around land. So, so there's been lots of cases in lots of different kinds of ways on that. Um, the question of whether this leads to gender-based violence, some of the patterns that we see, again, there's such a range of patterns of what we see changing in rural areas, um, right? There's kind of a big question, right? There's, there's lots of links with 
with gender-based violence, um, whether that's directly, whether there's cases where it's been shown that it's directly an impact of, right? One of the things that often happens is when men move out, if you're, if, if you're a woman and your husband moves out, the probability that you're going to get beaten by your husband is going to go down, at least while he's in another country. <laughs> um, but what happens with gender-based violence within the family where you're living, all of those kinds of things. I think this, the patterns really, but I, there's, I don't know that there's been very much work that really looks at kind of these changing la labor patterns and, and gender-based violence. Um, and I think in terms of the patterns of labor across areas, yes, we do see differences. One of the differences, right, the differences across areas in terms of who's migrating out and places where it's predominantly or almost all men that are moving out of the rural areas. And then in other areas where we do see many more women moving out, leaving the men remaining in the rural communities. Um, I think one of the interesting things in that little bit of the literature about what happens when women move out there's almost none of it that focuses on what happens to the to agriculture within the household. Um, most of the literature that talks about when women are moving out, um, the question is, who's doing the domestic work? Um, and are men taking over mm -hmm. the domestic work? Or which other women are moving into the household to do that domestic work? But we know that those women have been contributing to agriculture often before they moved out, but we haven't looked very much, much at that. Um, but in terms of those patterns of, of labor, so it depends on who's, who's moving out, which age group is moving out. Is it young, young people moving out? Is it married men who are the ones migrating out of the rural areas? Those all have a big impact on the, on the welfare. But I think the other big piece of, of the way it's different in different places is how much of the changes are um, about women moving into new jobs being created in commercial agriculture. So doing some of the seasonal work on the farm, but also women moving into jobs in packing and, and processing. And that varies quite a bit by, by the part of the world that you're, that you're in. So uh, from, me... from my side now, I, yes, I got that question, thank you. So for women organizing uh, groups, yes, especially in Nepal, I see literature in Nepal, uh, like this take opportunities that men are all migrated. So women or even have uh, organizing uh, groups for farming, irrigations. That is a transformative really approaches that women become a public and groups and support <coughs> each other. Uh, for the second one, uh, gender-based violence in the case of Vietnam, uh, sometimes government uh, recommends uh, those men who have a problem of uh, physical abusing wife uh, to uh, facilitate their migration uh, to other countries. Two years let them to separate so that you know men keep uh, busy in working and then they come back with incomes so that the violence uh, become uh, down. So those cases I know, and also, but uh, when they go to migrate uh, with couples, couples go to migrate, but when they cannot earn incomes as they expect, you know, men start drinking alcohol and physical abuse taking place. So always uh, this is the old story behind, uh, but not really documented, uh, I think. 
Uh, the third one, uh, there are, of course, there is a trend, like, for example, Southeast Asia, uh, women tend to migrate uh, much more than, uh, for example, compared to South Asia. Uh, however, it's, uh, of, uh, there are much more complex, uh, even within uh, regions of one country. For example, in Vietnam, one, one community, one village, all men migrate. Uh, but in the next village, all women migrate to Thailand. Why this happens? Because it's all social networks uh, that de determine uh, where to go, who to go. Uh, so that was, of course, influencing the regions, communities, uh, even national levels. Uh, but uh, it's, I think it's getting more and more difficult uh, to uh, capture those patterns because it's much more complex and everybody has opportunities, increasing opportunity to migrate in many areas. Thank you. Great, thanks. We had another um, well, question and a comment from uh, Sabina Singh. Uh, she wanted, she asked, she, she says, uh, can you please reflect on how justified it is to label female wage labor in agriculture as women farmers when they do not have any choice in what to grow? Um, so, uh, so that's like one part of the question, but she, I think she further goes to note that of course, uh, you know, they are contributing to agriculture as laborers and they may feel a very strong sense of pride in identifying their identities as laborers who earn livelihoods in that in that respect as well. But I, I guess so. The question is really about um, maybe unpacking those those two types of um, uh, effects of fem, you know feminization that you're seeing and how how we should view those and interpret those. I, I think she's really reinforcing one of the points that I made. Right, that confounding and talking about women as agricultural laborers and women as farm, farmers on smallholder farms are really different patterns. And if we're only looking at the number of women in agriculture, um, we're, we're bundling those two together. And I guess I would agree that we don't want to be bundling those together, those changes between, we actually want to know if women are moving between those two, between being um, maybe a family laborer on their household farm versus moving and working in the commercial sector as an agricultural laborer, right? And if we just label this all the feminization of agriculture, we miss those really important nuances that that, that you've just raised. Mm -hmm. Good, maybe I, I'm gonna jump in with one question. So I, I could see that there is a lot of, uh, you know, as you've been kind of debunked some of these myths or at least provided a lot more nuance to them, um, you know, I think the importance of, you know, good diagnostic tools, um, you know, comes to, to my mind. And I'm just in the process of re, re, reviewing quite a few of these new initiatives in the CGIR, and many of them are, you know, aspiring to help, um, you know, uh, target women or to weigh gender equality as one of their, their you know, key outcomes and so forth. And I could see, you know, and they're all trying to work in seven countries or eight countries. And I could see that there could be a tendency to also make some general generalizations and assumptions unless they really get down to, to really understanding better. So are there some uh, good, you know, tools that you could suggest? Uh, I mean, I think some of the older ones that we have are probably very useful, but I mean, ones that might specifically consider um, the, the effects of transformation processes, migration, other kinds of things. Yeah, so. 
So I, I guess the first thing I would say is just that I think in data collection efforts, really trying to disaggregate the labor, um, obviously by, by gender, but also be able to collect the data in such a way that you can disaggregate it by some of these other things as well, caste, age, position within the family can be really important for understanding the dynamics of the, of the changes. Um, so one thing is to think about how are we documenting the kind of changes that are happening? How are we making sure that we're not just figuring out whether women are involved in the agricultural labor force or men for that matter, but trying to understand what they're actually doing? I think one way that's helpful to think about some of these kinds of changes that are going on is that some of them are on the extensive margin. So it's people moving in and out of having agriculture be their primary work. Um, which some of the labor force surveys kinds of questions can, can actually get at, right? Are, are men and women moving from being primarily in, engaged in agriculture to being engaged in working in cities, men working in construction, women is working as domestics or whatever that is. The other dimension that's really important is on the intensive margin and trying to think about to what extent are women doing more men and women are they doing more work providing more hours in agricultural labor and for that you need a different kind of data collection effort right and so if we're worried about these situations where men are leaving and women are now trying to do much more of the agricultural work on their smallholder farm they may have already been farmers the change may be that they're working many more hours on the farm um, and so we also need to be measuring on these intensive margins. And so that may include things like time use surveys, um, trying to understand how much, how much work people are actually doing, doing on their farm, not whether or not they are. So those are kind of two dimensions that I would argue that we need to be thinking about. Those are different thinking about the welfare imp implications, right? Um, of who's better off with with some of these changes and how does it affect welfare so there's lots now of measures of women of women's empowerment some of them also include modules for measuring men's empowerment right the women's empowerment in agriculture not only looks at women's empowerment but also looks at looks at men's um, empowerment so some of these new some of these other kinds of tools are helping to capture some of those welfare effects Nozomi? thank you cheryl uh Yes, I'm also one of the activists that it's incredible that they target 10 million youth to reaching out uh, women beneficiaries of 100,000, I don't know. So they tend to write uh, in order to, for, for the target of gender equity. Uh, my suggestion, there's no such, uh, you know, one solution or a tool that can solve all issues. Uh, but that critical questions that we presented uh, in the last slide is a uh, one step. So my recommendation is in each initiative design, we have to incorporate a context analysis, a needs assessment as a first uh, activity, because it's completely irrelevant to introduce your innovations 
uh, to women in the area where women are all migrating. So where you have to find opportunities, like in that, as I said, you know, already women's uh, groups are organized uh, because of male-out migrations that to make transformation with your initiative. So identify those appropriate uh, targets. But before I really strongly suggest to put social scientists, uh, gender researchers to do uh, assessment uh, in the beginning of initiative. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Nozomi. Good. Uh, I'll take three. I'm going to do, I just got three uh, questions recently. So let me pose all of them to you. And then maybe that will be the last ones we'll have time for. But <clears throat> so from Gordon Prane, who I believe is from SIPA, uh, uh, internal migration of both, uh, he says, both internal migration of both men and women is not always one way or permanent. Are you aware of cases of co-management when men or women return to the farm location after seasonal urban work? And does that lead to any gender conflict? And I think this relates to one of your responses, Cheryl, to the previous question about the, some of these nuanced uh, migration patterns. Then Jawuku from IPRI asks, well, he refers back, Cheryl, to your seminal work in Ghana from 2001 on men's crops and women's crops. Um, he says, 20 years later, what would uh, you add or revise to your earlier conclusion that uh, we can't divide crops by, by gender, but policies can't be gender neutral, uh, given all these the new data and insights in the, in the two decades that have uh, come since then? And then uh, Martin Van Ginkel came back with another question on, uh, he says, well, women are also operating increasingly in off-farm service areas within agri-food systems, such as food processing and sales. Those are also very valuable contributions by women in the wider food systems. Are you, are you studying these areas also, or is there uh, you know, more generally an effort to study those that, that you're aware of? Thanks. Over to both of you then. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of work going on on the question on internal migration. I guess maybe Nozomi's got some examples of, of this to answer that, that specific question of what happens when to the farms, when men leave temporarily and seasonally and then, and then come back. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure we can make a generalization about what happens in those circumstances. I think the patterns really have changed. One of the things I think that's really changed a lot in the last 10 years is, is the ability of men when they migrate seasonally or longer to stay in touch with the family, right? Because of, because of all the kinds of technology. Um, so that men who used to migrate seasonally and then come back at the end of the season now can be staying in touch. The women may or may not be doing exactly what the men are telling them to do when the men call home. Um, but I, I don't think we've had a search to kind of understand those links. One of the issues that came up quite a bit in our conversations on this broader project on beyond the feminization of agriculture was that those links between the migrant and, the, and their family or home community really sh does shape what's going on, whether they're coming home regularly, whether they're in touch regularly, um, whether they're sending remittances. So we do know that those things matter. 
um, on the men's crops and women's crops. So I have not thought about this in a while in that way. Um, I think a lot of what I said in 2001 still holds in the sense that to sort of label some crops as being men's crops and some crops as being women's crops, um, there's something useful about doing that. And there are crops that men are more likely to grow and some that women are more likely to grow. But if we just label them and assume that they're static, it's some of the same problems that we're talking about now with thinking about labor. Those things change. What crops women grow and what crops men grow change in response to migration, as Nozomi was saying, right? Where when men migrate out, it's not that it's just a static thing on the farm and women are trying to do all the same things on the farm. They're not keeping the farms the same as they were when the men were there they're actually changing the mix of crops. So that what we need to think about is how is the mix of crops grown different depending on who's, who's managing the farm, um, on, on who's providing the labor and, and some of those kinds of, kinds of issues. So I think some of those broad issues that I raised are still relevant to be, to be thinking about. Um, and, and again, yes, I think in terms of women working off farm, we need to be thinking about that as different and measuring that differently than we do in terms of thinking about women taking over smallholder farms. And that discussions about the feminization of agriculture does often lump them together. And that's what we're arguing we need, we need to pull apart. At the beginning of all this, Frank mentioned two of the other um, webinars that are coming up that came out of some of the PIM gender work um, on and we're doing a couple on work that we've been doing around value chains beyond the farm production node and so thinking about what's happening women's roles in some of these the nodes of the value chain including um off farm the processing kinds of work so yes there is quite a bit thinking about that um there's a new women's empowerment in agriculture index that's specifically designed to look at inclusion in value chains rather than just looking at inclusion on the farm. So quite a bit of work being done on that and come back to some of these other webinars that my colleagues are doing. Great, thanks Cheryl. And Nozomi, any final replies from you? Okay, so I will only answer the first question of Gordon that we actually didn't touch uh, much about those household strategies, you know, co-management, uh, not really uh, every household of women uh, or men. It's not such like that. Actually, it's very much complicated. And sometimes both husband and wife migrate in different uh, seasons for different uh, uh, work. Or some very complex, I think, implication of that from the literature in Southeast Asia. One is that women, even if they migrate, they still keep, if internal uh, domestic migration, they still keep on one foot on farms. So uh, women have to be still responsible for farming, even if they migrate. Same for domestic work and child care. We have still uh, have to be responsible. Uh, so. So uh, that, that is uh, some implications that women overburdened. We need labor saving uh, technologies. Uh, also, that house strategy and co-management. 
uh, influence their crop choices if they want short-term crops or long-term crops. Uh, so th those things, I think we really have to uh, look uh, into closely about it. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Nozomi. I see we're out of time, so let me try to just wrap up. So a uh, big thanks to Cheryl and Nozomi and also the co-authors uh, of the paper and to everybody who participated in the in the collaborative project. Um, I think these collaborations are very, very useful, and I'm looking forward to many more uh, with the new gender platform and the new initiatives rolling out and others around the world also trying to, to organize uh, research on the, around uh, gender. It's very, very important to continue to do. And um, also the, the the notion of trying to bust myths, I think is very important. We had, you know, a few years ago, we, we did a, also had a, a nice paper on land ownership by women and stewardship of resources, uh, women versus men, some myths around that as well. And I hope that uh, you'll continue to look at new ones and, and tease them out. And Jawu actually put in one uh, in the chat uh, uh, that you might want to take up in the future on the gender uh, digital divide, for example, as another myth. So thanks again, once again, and as uh, uh, Cheryl referred to, and I think Evgeny has put in the chat, um, yes, we will be having a, a, a two webinars on uh, the Gender Dynamics and Value Chains Collaborative Project. The, the next one is uh, a week from today, actually, at the same time slot. So that will be on some of the findings. And then the next one will be later on in October. So I hope to see you there, and thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.